and welcome to Season 2 of Power Talk. Power Talks are short, powerful interviews from leading youth violence experts, spreading new ideas and sharing best practice. For more information on the work our charity Power the Fight does and to find out how you can help empower communities to end youth violence, please visit www.powerthefight.org.uk. On today's episode, we have TJ Colioso, youth worker and bassist from the jazz group Ezra Collective and Young People's Laureate for London, Teresa Lola. Today, we look at the topic of young creators and the importance of creating alternative narratives for young people. Guys, welcome to Power Talk. I'm really excited to have you guys on this latest edition. Uh, do you want to just introduce yourself and just tell us who you are? Let's, let's go ladies first. Um, my name is Teresa Lola. I'm a poet. Um, I'm currently the Young People's Laureate for London. Great. I'm going to ask in a minute what that actually means. But that is, that's, <laughs> yeah. and, and I'm TJ. I'm a musician. I play bass for a band called Ezra Collective and also involved in church work as well. Amazing. And first of all, I wanted to say congratulations on Ezra Collective's latest album, Charting. Yeah. Winning at number... <laughs> We're at uh, 32, I think, on the album charts. Which yeah. is incredible for the type of... Just explain, anyone who's not familiar with your music, yeah. what, what, what type of stuff, if you can explain what yeah. Ezra Collective so, is about. So Ezra Collective is very much under the umbrella of jazz. That's what we go by, but because we grew up in 21st century London, multicultural London, we've got grime influence and hip hop influence and you'll hear bits of Afrobeat and you know that fellow Kui influence in there. So yeah. we say it's jazz because of the improvisation element to it, but it's much more palatable than what a lot of people would associate jazz with. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been following you guys from day, but I've also just checked that whole scene, seen how it's grown over the last kind of I suppose 10, even 15 years with mm. groups like United Vibrations and just seeing how it's kind of progressed is incredible. Mm. And for music, which is basically mainly instrumentation driven, to chart like that, that is, that is incredible. Yeah. Um, it's high quality stuff, so well oh, done. Thank you. I'm really, really, really proud about it. Teresa, tell us, Young People's <laughs> Laureate for London, yeah. that's a grand title, um, yeah. what does it actually mean? So, as the laureate, I basically have to be the leading voice um, for young people in London. So, um, elevating the voices of young people and the issues that we go through, um, particularly using creativity as a way to allow young people to express themselves. So, I'm a poet, and so poetry is kind of the main tool that is used. So, for a range of workshops, um, campaigns, engagements, events, a range of things, to so just engage young people and allow them to express themselves. Wow, so how, and that's incredible. How did you, I mean, is it the type of thing where you just apply for to be this role or do you get picked out? How, how, did, how did you become a young people's lawyer? No, so um, the main arts organisations in the UK nominate people and then you get asked to apply and you're interviewed. Uh -huh. So the South Bank Centre, Poetry Society, Roundhouse, them kind of put in nominations and then they whittle it down to one person. And that was you? Yeah. That's incredible. And so, being the voice for a generation in, in yeah. London, that's quite a responsibility. Um, how do you gather uh, different voices? What type of things do you do? I mean, you, you mentioned workshops and stuff, and how many yeah. of those workshops do you do, and what type of stuff comes out? It just depends on the group of young people you're working with. So I kind of work with the understanding that young people are very different and eclectic in London especially. So um, for Mental Health Awareness Week, I did a range of workshops with BBC Radio London, 
um, on mental health and creativity and their poems were shared over the radio over the week. Wow. Um, so that was an important um, kind of workshop. And then I also do a workshop in schools and also with um, youth groups. So I did one with a, um, an extracurricular group of um, a football group for young women. Um, so just different kinds of young people. So those in vulnerable positions, yes, but also those in institutions, so like schools or doing yeah. an extracurricular activity. Um, so it ranges. Sometimes it's fun. <laughs> yeah. And then sometimes it's about real issues. Yeah. And um, TJ, you're also, obviously, you know, you're travelling the world, doing a lot of stuff with Ezra Collective, but you're also a youth worker yourself. What type of stuff do you, you engage in and how do you even get into this stuff? Yeah, so just through, I guess, serving at church and going through the like the motions of being a youth myself and then you kind of get to an age like I want to still have my foot in this thing. So um, I guess from the age of about 18, I just I had one or two younger guys that were just doing their GCSEs and I'm like, I could help you in this. And I failed my A-levels and so the people that were going into that kind of thing, I pulled a few guys together and really kind of tried to speak into their lives and just mentor them. Um, and then just ran little little groups after school and stuff like that. So that's really where my youth work, I guess, would have started while I was, I was still a youth. Um, and then ever since then, like my brother kind of runs the, um, my brother and a couple of my friends run the um, youth side of my church, and I'm more involved in the young adults ministry. Okay. But you see that balance between yeah kind of sixth form age and people that want to be in the, which is really important as, yeah. as a pastor myself. That kind of transition yeah. from coming out of youth group into young adults, we don't always do very well at with church. I, I would say we do it pretty terribly. Oh, most of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah man. Just, right, just yeah. being completely honest, because mm. what what happens is you you finish that kind of youth thing where you it's very structured. Mm. You go in. It's a, something for you to do. It's a lot of entertainment and stuff. And then you go to university where you're literally in the the yeah. wider world and like all these kinds of different people and you're experiencing so many different things. Yes. And you know, some of my friends are in Cardiff or Leicester and they have no they don't feel like there's any base, you yeah. know. And then when they come back to Enfield where I am, <laughs> everything's moved on. Everyone looks different. Wow. And then they look around and it's like, I don't fit in anymore. Yes. And then that's when they can become kind of like a lone soldier a lot of the time. Yeah. So a lot of my job is to create relationships with the younger people so that when they get into that season of their life, yes. there's still a contact point so that when they come back, it's still, I'm still able to connect which, them. And, which is, you know, if you're talking biblical, that's just discipleship. Yeah, straight. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's necessary and something we don't always do that well. And obviously I know a little bit about your church, but just talk about the type of numbers that you're dealing with in terms of... Yeah, so in the youth group currently, I think to uh, camp last year, we took 200 of the young people. So let's just clarify, you got 200 young people in your church and they yeah. all came to effectively a Christian camp called yeah. New Day. In Norwich. In Norwich. Yeah, we got so 200. To Enfield kids. Enfield kids to camp. It's a big thing. The, right, yeah, yeah but the kids are great, man. Yeah. Like, honestly, you meet them and on the surface sometimes I think it's easy for people to look in and get a little bit scared by the the noise or the the chaos that sometimes it, yeah. you know the young people can bring. But when you speak to them, it's just like you see yourself in a lot of them. Man. Yeah. You see yourself in a lot of them. So, yeah, I love it. I, I love see. it all. So, Power, Power to Fight, um, as a charity, we're all about collaborating. We're all about getting different people's views and trying to empower the communities. Part of this, this solution to the issue of youth violence and, and knife crime and gangs, which we see in the press at least, mm. uh, 
coming out a lot more. One of the reasons why I wanted to get both of you guys on Power Talk is because you, in, both in different ways, really do engage with young people. Um, I always get frustrated when we have these conversations, there's no young people around the table, um, or we don't have people who actually engage with uh, uh, the cohort which are most likely to be involved with this stuff. So from your perspective, uh, what type of views uh, are you getting from young people around this issue of youth violence? You know, I, I want to go beyond what the Daily Mail will have as headlines, or even as an adult, my perspective on this. You guys are right at the heart, engaging with young people in different ways. What's the feeling around knife crime and youth violence with the people you're working with? Um, the young people I work with feel like the news, the media, is demonising them. And I think it only further isolates them um, when they look on the news and um, you see things like stop and search. And the solution isn't really about engaging with young people and finding out the root of the issues. It's more about just taking a knife off their hands. So it's not really cutting out the real issues at hand. And I think that in terms of young people going into the knife and picking up a knife, it's really this feeling of being powerful. It's wanting to be powerful and it's this fear of vulnerability. And I think that's where the creativity comes in. Um, for us, it's really just allowing them to express themselves and just allowing them to understand that there is power in vulnerability. Um, and things like peer pressure as well, when we think about masculinity, because it is mostly young men that are picking up the knife. Um, and some other issues, I mean, statistics show that it is people from um, low-income households that are um, susceptible to knife crime. Um, but you have people who come from, quote, good homes who are also getting into this. So it's a wider problem of um, not wanting to feel isolated to peer pressure, um, but also, I think, not trusting the police. So you find that um, knife, knife is basically used to combat violence. So the first thing you're not thinking about is calling the police or calling someone order to solve the issues is just going straight to the knife. So I think there is that tension yeah. as well. So there are a range of things that contribute to it. And when we think on a governmental level, there is, this lack, there is a lack of funding for so many things. I know the Mayor of London is trying to put in the Young Londoners Fund and has the um, right. violence unit. Violence yeah. unit, yes. So a range of things, but um, yeah, there's still a lot more to be done, even when we think about mental health as well. Yeah. Um, that lack of funding for early intervention. Um, so yeah, there are a range of things from household to yeah. on a governmental level. No, I mean, and I think they're all really valid points. You talk about the Mayor of London um, recently, a survey he did with 8,000 kids in London. And um, they were talking about the things that they fear the most in the household and in the school. And I think maybe 30% of them said like, knife crime was a, was a concern. Another 30% of them said, you know, uh, gangs was a, was a concern. One of the most interesting statistics were actually, I think 44% of the people interviewed had no confidence in police. Now you marry that with uh, this study, the Race Disparity Audit in 2017, which the government put out. And basically, it talks about uh, black people being the high, highest in terms of stop and search, but also has the lowest confidence in, in police. So on one hand, you're a victim, but the people you want to, or you should be feeling confident, you, you've got no confidence in. So I think you, what you've just said, there's an interesting kind of dilemma, um, but also it gives you a sense of, of kind of what young people 
and not just young people, even older people in the community mm. are feeling. Is that a similar kind of uh, feeling that you get with the 200 young people that you, <laughs> that you engage with? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think we're in a inter- very interesting time now. I mean, I grew up in the... T- I was a teenager in the kind of 2008, seven times mm. when it was, mm. it was just yeah, difficult. Was... It was actually just difficult. Enfield had, I think, the second most gangs in London. Right. In my year, they would, in my school, there would just be people from all different gangs. and It was just a mess. And then you had the riots, which was a bit of a turning point. And it was a finally, it's like, okay, there's a problem. Mm. And it's like, it went beyond the, the working class. And it's like, okay, now other mm. people are being affected. Let's try and do something about it. And um, since then, now, if I look back on my generation compared to the people that are there now, it's a different school of thought. It's, I feel like it's a very different school of thought. I feel like we were very fearful every time we stepped out because you would just see a green bandana and suddenly mm. your day's been ruined. Mm. Whereas now, it's, it's not so much that. But you have these three schools of thought with people. You've got the majority, I would say, who aren't involved, don't really want to be involved, and kind of just want to get by and get to university or get their apprenticeship or do whatever and do what they want to do. You've got this middle group of people where they want the bad lifestyle. Mm. They, have this, they see something a little bit lucrative in it, and it's just like... The, the, whether it's the fraud type of things, I feel like fraud is kind of outdone Robins now. Which, That's a really interesting point. We'll come yeah. back to that. Yeah. But you know, a lot more fraud than Robin now, and they kind of want that lifestyle or shot in and trying to get the money mm. in that way, and they want that lifestyle. And then you've got this really small group of people who they don't really have a choice. You know, I've spoken to people where it's like, yeah, they've been out trapping since 13, and you're mm. like, oh, who brought you through? It's like my uncle. Right, yeah. It's like, okay, you, yeah, you didn't yeah. have... And the thing that you look through all of it is each and every single person is looking for purpose. Yes. Purpose is the meaning of life, really, when you look at it from any point of view, people just want purpose. And you look at those people, the majority is like, we have purpose because I'm like myself. I wasn't going to pick up a knife because my parents, are, you know, I, had, I saw a different way. Sure. And I had, I had music and I wasn't going to throw all of that away for the, mm. you know. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, yeah. I think I've got children myself, they're, they're, they're young. One of the things that my, me and my wife are desperate to do is make sure that they are into something. So even yeah. though uh, my eldest is seven, you know, he's already uh, learning different instruments and, and stuff because in my mind part of it not all of the solution is that mm-hmm. if you can give them something to mm. keep going back to and practice and engage in you know hopefully that might be one of the reasons which you can divert and maybe even disrupt any potential peer pressure in, in, in future life you guys are both uh, extremely talented poetry uh, bass and probably other instruments <laughs> I don't know that you, that you play but how important was that, that you guys had this? I mean, I don't know, for example, mm. when you really started getting into poetry, is it something you've been doing since, you know, oh, as gosh. soon as you can speak? Yeah. <laughs> or, like, you know, well, just tell us a little bit about um, the importance of having that gift and skill. It's really important. Poetry came as a lifesaver. It was very awkward in shine school, and poetry was really my way of feeling important. I could, I could write a new world in poetry and it gave me confidence. I learned how to be in front of a crowd of people because I was performing. So I know firsthand just how important 
um, it is for young people to have something. But I think it's important, not just for the household, like the, your parents or like people around you to give you something. I think it's important for the schools to work together mm. with the, the parents because when you think about the age that people start getting into knife crime, for example, they might not have figured out exactly what they want to do at that point. And so if they're disruptive in school, you have a lot of schools that just kind of go first to exclusion. And so there's a lot of talk about how much that contributes to knife crime. So if you have schools having funding to have extra extracurricular activities, for students to get involved in, they wouldn't even be able to get to that. They would be able to get to that point where they um, realise what they want to do or realise something that makes them feel like they belong. So yes, it's important for, um, you know, young people to have extracurricular activities or things that they do like music or poetry or anything else. But it's important for them to be given the opportunity to even have that. Um, and not their household or the people around them might not necessarily give them that opportunity. So school... And do you feel that those opportunities... You, you tend to have to look outside of school to find those, or do you think that schools are kind of beginning to learn that? Because I always use this example when I was at school. I, I, was, I was and still am very bad at art, and therefore um, the whole idea of maybe working in the arts was like, if I can't draw, then what's the point? Mm. Now, it's only as I got older and I, I started going to art galleries and I started seeing how the industry is, particularly with, with the visual arts, that there's, I realised there's a whole kind of different career out there, lots of different ways that you can in, still be part of the art industry and you don't actually have to pick up a, a pencil. Yeah. My issue was that nobody ever came into my school and told me that. I had somebody have said to me, oh, do you know what, you don't actually have to be good at art to be involved mm. in art. It would have been a game changer. Do you, do you think we're seeing a difference now where young people are given more opportunities to explore the creativity in a school setting or are we still a long way to go? I think we've, got, I think we've still got a long way to go. And the reason I say that, I mean, I left school what, five, six years ago now and there was just a lack of exposure to the wider world because there was this kind of, very much, we have a, a goal and a target and a number that we need to achieve and to get to that place, everything needs to be structured, 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 structured. So you're bringing kids in very much fluid thinking young people into a rigid system where it's like you have to learn this and do this and basically the whole thing was just a memory game like with a lot of the subjects. It was only those one or two teachers that would go out of their way and kind of be like, forget the Ofsted thing for a second, let's yeah, do yeah. like a debating club at lunchtime. So I got pulled into that and got taught how to speak. If it wasn't for that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing half the stuff I'm doing now. And it's like those little bits of extracurricular things are the things that really stuck with me through school. But that's not championed. It's not celebrated. Mm. It's a what's celebrated and championed is we got an outstanding based on these structured lessons that we have, rather than a these are the extracurricular, these are the lives that have been changed as and, a direct. And it's silly, yeah. isn't it, really, when you think about it, it, it starts with an assumption that every child goes into school on the same level, mm -hmm. which, you know, even if you just take this room, we all would have different learning styles and we all have different experiences. And I don't know, you don't know what I had to deal with before I got here. I don't know what you had to deal with, but we're all still expected to just respond and, and perform. Yeah. Whereas we know that that isn't really the case with a lot of the young people who unfortunately do get caught up in this issue. Some of them may well have had to, might not even come to school with breakfast or might have had to take the younger siblings to school might have to avoid two or three bad men as they even got to the school and all this type of issue. What do you think, you know, let's say you both are prime minister, <laughs> or even if you weren't prime minister, just what do you think some of the solutions are? What do you think fundamentally 
we need to do, either as a community or as a government, to really deal with this, this issue of youth violence? Um, okay. <laughs> See, I, the way you did this, like, I thought about this. I've got, yeah. I, I've got a manifesto. No, 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 I'm like, <laughs> so if I wouldn't ever want to be Prime Minister. Okay. But, um, yeah, I think you'd be a good Prime Minister, though. Nah, <laughs> I would just cry like on TV, you know. Um, I think first it needs to be more local police officers. Um, sometimes I walk around my neighbourhood and, um, well, now it doesn't, we don't, I don't see them anymore, but you usually have like two police officers just walking and canvassing the area. And there is this safety that, you know, you feel comes to that. Um, and I think that would, especially neighbourhoods and areas that are more susceptible to violence, I think that would be very useful to just have police officers canvass in the area. Um, I know that the funding for that was cut, so I think that that funding needs to be put back. I think schools as well to provide support um, so that they don't have to exclude so many students or if they're going to remove students, give them some sort of other alternative that doesn't just mean them roaming around on the street. I think early intervention, thinking about mental health um, funding, so students that they realise are exhibiting things like isolation or just worrying behaviour, mm. making sure that there is counselling provided in the school, and because a lot of schools don't have that, and that word counselling, that word mental health is still very stigmatised in schools among young people. I know that was the case when I was growing up. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. Do you think, just yeah. on the mental health, yeah. like, you know, we... we... <laughs> I always go back to when I was at school, and... Mm. I was a pretty good kid, so I didn't get into fights too often. But if I ever did get into a fight, I never thought I was going to get stabbed. I thought I might get mm. like a black eye or a punch in the ribs, but I never thought I'm going to lose my life. Mm. What I tend, when I talk to young people now, there was just kind of like this paranoia. Like, if I'm going to be approached by somebody, is that person going to have a knife and what could happen? What I therefore, the conclusion I've come to is that the collective trauma and the mental health of an mm. average young person. Like you said, it's really helpful that you put it into those three categories. What all those three people have is a fear, maybe, mm. that are we about to be approached or get caught up in something which may revolve in a knife? I never had that growing up. Mm. That was not my fear. Do you see that playing out in young people's mental health at all? I mean, you mentioned yeah. it as well. I, just... um, I definitely see that playing out. I think PTSD is very real. <laughs> and I think it's underplayed. We, we kind of use PTSD when thinking about granted things like maybe soldiers going to war. But it, young people definitely experience it. Um, and I think that sometimes that's what allows them to get caught up in the cycle. So you have people who have been stabbed and still go back into that life of crime. You're thinking your life is on the line, but they just ha they're just not able to process what they're going through. Um, and that cycle continues in their family, but also kind of peer pressure as well, which then affects your mental health because you're living with this fear and you're thinking, if they couldn't be protected, I can't be protected. So, yeah, I think that, um, yeah, mental health and <laughs> um, PTSD. Yeah, Prime Minister TJ. Prime Minister TJ. <laughs> no, it's really interesting you're talking yeah. about PTSD. That's a massive thing. It keeps you in that, like, fight or flight, um, yes. like, state of mind, which I always say people, people carry knives because people carry knives. And if you've ever been approached as someone that's got a knife, like, you know, it's kind of sometimes I laugh about it back in the day because I'm with my brothers and mm. it's kind of like, oh, we got away with that one or we didn't. But it's scary. Like, it's a scary, scary thing when someone pulls out a blade and says, give me your phone or whatever it was back then. Mm. And then after that moment, you change. 
regardless, you are changed. And so now when I'm walking, or not so much now, but when I was walking through an alleyway or whatever, paranoid, paranoid, paranoid the whole time. And if you're paranoid and you've also got a weapon on you, yeah. that's how a lot of good kids end up in bad situations, yeah, you know? So just to add on to that, it's a real thing. But if I was prime minister, that'd be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think the, the first kind of thing that I would do is try and change the culture very deliberately because there is a problem, I, I think, in, in London culture, maybe in UK culture. I can't really speak on the whole thing, but the things that are promoted and championed are the things that most people don't really care about. When it gets to the, okay, what should we be like elevating in society? I'm talking about people like my, my bro Toby who will come in on a Saturday morning and teach people for basically no money or nothing at all. Mm. And, you know, do what he can. Or this person who, they don't really have too much of a skill, but they'll meet up with a young person during the week and just have coffee with them and this and that. Now, if those are the kind of things that are championed in society and you're seeing recognition for it time and time again, it makes it an us issue rather than a them issue, yes. which I think is the main problem. You've got this higher tier who have maybe had access to better education or more opportunities to kind of hold this. I've now got these qualities and these abilities that I'm going to hold for myself and then kind of blame the police for, for everything else. And it's like, mm. no, why don't we take what we've got it's an us issue, and each one teach one. Each one teach mm. one, each one. If that's now the culture, then that's at least one step in the right direction. Mm. Because I've got two or three young kids around me who actually look up to me. I've got a young boy called Joel who's grew up in a good family and everything, but he just loves bass guitar. Mm. So I say, come in on Saturday, I'll teach you bass. But let me, let me, let me, let me, um, well, I do not disagree with anything you just said. But some people would argue that, especially in London, mm -hmm. That the way uh, we've got college rat race, the way that you know, if you are trying to rent or, or buy or just austerity has, has caused like it's it's survival mode, mm -hmm. it's survival mm -hmm. mode, and you know I'm I'm the, the first person who and have mentored and continue to mentor people and have seen the fruit of it over the last twenty years of what happens when you spend time with somebody and it's the beautiful thing when they come through the other end. Mm -hmm. But what I am picking up is that even if people have got good hearts to do that, the way everybody's in survival, you just got to go on the tube and just see how people are just face down. Do you think it's like, is that realistic? Is it realistic? I would be audacious and say, yes, it is mm. realistic if the culture shifts. So if we continue with this whole, the most important thing is the money we've got in our hands and that kind of being comfortable, that's the purpose in life, is to be comfortable, it seems, then no, it's not going to happen, if, that's the, if that is the prerogative of everyone. But if it's now, no, we want people to be healthy in their minds, healthy mm. in their spirits, healthy emotionally, even healthy physically, mm. that's now the priority, which, I mean, it's a huge job. Mm. But then you kind of do find out, yeah, I'm, I'm working long hours, but I have got, I would say pretty much everyone, maybe I'm wrong, has half an hour to call a young person. Yes. Mm. And first year university, if I had a half an hour call with someone, <laughs> like I did every now and again, oh my gosh, it made mm. all the difference. Mm -hmm. So it's something, it, most people feel like they have to go above and beyond to, oh, to change the whole mm. society, I'm gonna have to do this and set up a school. No, it, <laughs> it, you know what I mean? It can, it can actually just be a half I an hour phone call. I agree with what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's, a, that's a good point. Like sometimes people look at the big picture and think, my goodness, I, 
how do I even start in this massive ocean of, of confusion and, and trouble, mm-hmm. whereas people don't want to take the smaller steps, which can yeah. make just as big of an impact. Um, yeah, all very true. Um, I always say this as we come into the end of our talks, just mm. is there anything that you want to kind of add uh, about the situation or even whether that is hope or even that's a case of where this is just my perspective and stuff or something we haven't covered. I always want to give people a bit of space. I don't let anybody walking away say, I wish I said this. So if there's, a mo- if there's anything, I don't know, if there's anything you, you want to add to the conversation or even promote something, you know. You, you, no, you've, you've I'm not going to be that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I would just say any young person watching this video should share it with their friends in the group chat on social media um, and have engaging conversations about how you can make your life and the world better. Yeah. yeah. That's what I will say. Yeah. And I guess I'll speak to the slightly older people mm. and just really kind of have a think about what it is that you can do yeah. to mm. make a drop in the ocean. Because mm. every little help, I sound like a test squad, but... It's the truth. Yeah, yeah, sure. It is the truth. Every little helps. And if you have a whole cohort of people running in the same direction, then it turns into a stampede, so... Mm. Yeah, I think that's both of those points. I mean, I'm... For me, something we said at the very beginning is just the, the lack of positive uh, stories of younger people which gets out there. Yep. Um, I've challenged politicians on that. Like when we're talking about this particular issue, mm-hmm. we know it's an issue, but, but we've said mm-hmm. the vast majority of young people are not involved in this. So can we also change the narrative to put some hope in it as well? Yep. I think you guys both represent that. I, I love what you guys are doing. Um, you have the support of Power to Fight and me personally in anything you do. I've been watching for a while. But it's so encouraging just to see what you guys um, have achieved and what you're going on to achieve. And like you, like you said, I hope young people are watching this and seeing two uh, young people following their dreams in a positive way and getting a recognition for that mm-hmm. is a wonderful thing. I never had this growing up. I never saw people uh, who looked like me, from the same area as me, mm. excelling in their lane. So I'm really hoping that people see that and it, it does kind of become like infectious and contagious in, in that kind of energy that we want to do some stuff. So thank you so much for your thank time. You. Yeah, thank uh, you. Power to you. Thank uh, you. And yeah, God thank bless. You. Yes. Thank you.